I think we are obligated, those of us who care about the climate, to uh, promote policies that will reduce emissions now, even if they're not necessarily our most desirable policies. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. As listeners know, in these podcast episodes, I engage in conversations with leading experts from academia, private industry, government, and NGOs, with our focus on environmental economics and policy, frequently within the realm of climate change policy. And today, we're fortunate to have with us someone with experience in at least two of those sectors, academia and government, and someone who is exceptionally well qualified to talk about the economics of climate change policy. I'm referring to my longtime colleague and friend, Gib Metcalf, professor of economics at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, and I'm pleased to say an associate scholar of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Gib, welcome to Environmental Insights. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm very interested to hear your impressions about the economic dimensions of environmental and climate change policy. Uh, but before we talk about that, let's go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. So let's start with, where did you grow up? I grew up in northern New York, in Watertown, New York, uh, with, but I had a brief stint in uh, Washington, D.C. while my father was in graduate school. Uh-huh. And then, so primary school and high school were in upstate New York? Actually, I went to a boarding school in Delaware, uh-huh. a small Episcopal boarding school called St. Andrew's School. And what was that experience like? Was that good? That was a terrific experience. It's a small school, but everyone was expected to participate in everything. So I never thought of, I always thought of myself as good in school, but not good in sports. But Mm -hmm. I ended up um, rowing on the crew and Uh ended up actually rowing in the finals at Henley. Wow. And then from there, did you go directly then to college? I went directly to Amherst College. That's right. And, And there you studied mathematics, if I have it correct. I did. I vacillated between math and history, and I ended up doing a lot of history, but I, I, I felt like the math was more challenging, so I went that route. And then you graduated in 1976, and you did you go on to graduate school right away, or did you work for a bit? No, I actually became a bicycle mechanic oh, wow. and ran a bike shop in Amherst, Mass. with some friends, and... Uh, Uh, did that while I was also doing a fair amount of anti-nuclear organizing. That all fits together. Somehow running a bike (laughs) shop in Amherst, Massachusetts in the 1970s, you'd have to be doing anti-nuclear organizing to go with it. Well, that was a time when there was talk about building a nuclear power plant in Montague, Mass, just north of Amherst. Right. Uh, But that fizzled. But, of course, all the action then was in Seabrook, And I was part of the Clamshell Alliance Uh that, among other things, uh, occupied the site. Right. Now, after Amherst College and after uh, being a bicycle mechanic, then you stayed in Amherst, but at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Is that right? 
Well, that's right. I drifted a bit. I, I ended up doing a fair amount of statewide anti-nuclear organizing. I started a statewide group that was fighting the sale of 20% of Seabrook to a consortium of municipally owned electric utilities. And in that process, I found myself going to town select meetings and light boards all across the state debating with economists about whether there was going to be demand for electricity and whether we needed Seabrook. And, and be, through that, it led to my uh, entering a master's program in environmental economics at UMass. And then you graduate from that in 84. Uh, did you go directly on to your PhD at Harvard? I went directly on to, uh, I actually finished in 82. Uh, I spent a year working for some faculty at UMass. I see. And then, uh, and then entered uh, Harvard in 84. I actually deferred a year. I should have come in in 83, which is, I think, when you came in. Yeah, that's right. But I, I deferred because uh, my wife and I, uh, we were trying to get pregnant. Uh -huh. And we thought we would um, do that, have a child, and then come to Harvard. But as luck would have it, we ended up having twins our, my first semester at Harvard in 1984. Certain things can't be perfectly planned, alas. <laughs> so um, what, tell, tell us about uh, your studies at Harvard, in particular, your dissertation, your committee. So I went into Harvard thinking I'm going to do energy economics, and, um, but no one was really doing that there. Right. Um, and I stumbled into a job working as a research assistant for Marty Feldstein, who had just come back from the Council of Economic Advisors as the chair. And that was just terrific. Marty was a fabulous um, mentor and advisor, mm -hmm. and I ended up doing state and local public finance. I kind of stumbled into it working with him. So I never knew that. I, I, I knew that you had been working in public finance, and I thought you discovered energy and environment later. It turns out energy and environment <laughs> came first, went into public finance, and then you returned to energy and environment. That's right, and I actually returned because there was a, uh, a grad student who had come up to the beer NBER with Alan Auerbach, who mm -hmm. was visiting. Uh, and it turned out he had been raised in Greenfield, Mass, and I, where I had lived, and I knew his mother. And it turned out Kevin Hassett and I got to be friends and began to write a series of papers on energy uh, economics. Indeed, and, and, and including a paper I know well that I'm going to actually get to. I'm interested to, to hear about that. But first, let me find out, just to finish your prof professional trajectory. So uh, you graduate in, in 1988, is that right, from Harvard? That's right. Same year yep. I did. Um, and then what was your first job out of school? Uh, so I went to Princeton. Mm -hmm. I was an assistant professor in the Department of Economics there. And how did you like that? You know, it was a great um, experience, a learning experience. I had terrific colleagues, uh, Harvey Rosen, Avinash Dixit, David Bradford, but I was, I was really quite eager to get back to New England. And you did that because you moved to Tufts as an assistant professor in 94? Do I have to? That's right. And you've been there ever since, which is unusual among faculty. It also characterizes me, I guess. But 
Well, that's right. Uh, uh, I've, I found Tufts to be a very congenial place. I love being in the Boston academic community. And as you well know, it's a, a very quick trip to get down to D.C. if you want to do policy-related work. And speaking of quick trips to D.C., didn't you go off to Washington full-time for a while to take a leave of absence? I did. I took a leave of absence in 2011 to become the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Environment at the Department of Treasury. And what did you do there? So my role, I was in the International Affairs uh, uh, Division working under Lael Brainerd, who's now at the yeah, Fed. Yeah. And uh, my job was to oversee Treasury's involvement in multilateral climate, energy, and environmental funds. People don't often know this, but, but the Department of Treasury is the overseer of any U.S. involvement in multilateral funds. So whether it's the World Bank, IMF, the climate investment funds, uh, whatever. Um, uh, we have oversight, and that was my job. I had a staff, and, and we participated in, in, in a variety of initiatives. Now, you mentioned earlier um, Kevin Hassett, um, who I believe is, is he, he's back at AEI now? Is that right? You know, I don't think he is. I th I'm not sure where he is now. But for a while, he was at CEA, of course, in the Trump years, right? He, he was head of CEA in the Trump years, and before that, he was the director of economic studies at AEI for many, many years. Right. Now, when I looked at your CV to prepare for this conversation, um, the first energy publication that I could find in academic journals was indeed your 93 article with Kevin Hassett, which I think was really interesting and in many ways path-breaking. It was one of the first articles, if you put aside some work by Jerry Hausman many years earlier. Um, can you tell us about that briefly? Well, have to remind me which paper you're talking about, because I wrote a lot of papers with oh, Kevin. Oh, so I'm thinking of the one in which you were looking at uh, household decisions regarding, uh, I think it was the adoption of energy efficiency equipment, or maybe it was in home construction. So so we wrote a, a series of papers where we were trying to understand the energy paradox. Yes. Why is it that households are not investing in what look like money-making uh, investments to, to save energy? So you pay some additional money today, you save energy in the future. It's a savings yes. savings investment. And what did you find? And, uh, and, and we brought a new sort of framing to it, which is that, that uh, while the while the, the, the investment you make today is a, is a known amount, you know how much you have to pay for that uh, more efficient furnace, the returns are uncertain because the returns depend on what happens to the price of energy. And so we adopted this option pricing framework that, that goes back, uh, you know, to a lot of uh, people have worked in the finance literature and Dixon and Pindyke wrote a book on this. And the, the point of that literature is that if there's uncertainty about the future returns, then in effect, you need a higher hurdle rate to make the investment. And the, one of the reasons I say that that work is path-breaking is just looking at the date of it, because even now, I don't know if you continue to follow this literature, but even today, the energy paradox is still a focus of research, particularly um, from behavioral economists. That's right. And, and I have followed it and been very interested in what the behavioral economists have found. Um, and we can talk about my, my thoughts on that if you want. But, but I think uh, uh, there are a number, what I take away is that there are a number of reasons for why we have the energy paradox. There's no one, uh, no one answer that, that, that entirely explains it. But I think 
our uncertainty argument was one issue, but I think the behavioral is also an important aspect. Right, and I certainly agree that there are a number of different factors. In fact, Richard Newell and I think Todd Girardin and I, but maybe it was someone else, but at least Richard Newell and I had an article in the Journal of Economic Literature when we looked exactly that. It summarized work in a workshop at Harvard that you participated in. I don't know if you remember that. But, I do remember yeah. that. But I, but tell me, um, you alluded to your your thoughts about the behavioral work. I'd love to hear that. Well, I think the behavioral work is really, really interesting, but I think it's also a bit discouraging in the sense that if you if you look at the sort of the cost ben, the benefit cost ratio for any kind of 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 nudge or other kind of information I'll, I'll say nudge a nudge type uh, uh, policy to to overcome behavioral obstacles you find that the benefit cost ratios are huge mm-hmm. uh, per dollar of cost the problem is the costs are incredibly small and I think that the the this the energy savings are quite small in most of these experiments. So while I think I, I think the uh, a lot of this literature is quite interesting, but I don't think it tells us much that's going to help us reduce energy consumption dramatically. So is the point there then that although there is a high ratio of benefits to cost, that both but the overall calculation, the overall issue, and the perception by consumers is that it's just trivial. Well, I think the benefits from these nudges are pretty small, and uh, in terms of the uh, the increased savings yeah. and the costs are pretty small. So the net benefits, net of cost, are going to be small. Right, right. So I want to now jump ahead to much more recent work of yours, but and that's on climate change policy, which is not recent in terms of your attention to it. But what I'm referring to is a book I'm going to recommend to our listeners, Paying for Pollution, Why a Carbon Tax is Good for America. It came out uh, in 2019 from Oxford University Press. Can you start us off here just by giving us a, a brief overview, if that's fair to ask you? I know it's like asking you which of your children do you like best, but a brief overview, the scope of the book, your methods of analysis, and maybe some key insights or conclusions that came from that work. Well, the book is really an effort to write in non-technical language what the problem is, why we should care about it, why a carbon tax is a good solution, uh, comparing it to some of the other possible policies out there. Um, When I wrote the book, uh, I I made a point to include no formulas, Mm -hmm. no equations in in the text and very few figures because uh, I really wanted it to be something that uh, uh, my vision was that a an aide to a senator or congressman would have this book. So when mm-hmm. his or her boss came into the office and said, so what's this thing about a carbon tax? What do I need to know? Mm-hmm. Then the aide could pull my book off the shelf and answer his or her questions. And w- so what stood out to you? I mean, in, in writing it, although partly it was summarizing research you had already done, you must have learned a lot in writing the book. What stands out from that in terms of some insights or conclusions that came to you? Well, uh, the first insight was it's really, really hard to write a book without equations. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're so used to uh, the shorthand of mathematics yeah. and to write things that, uh, you know, that my English major father could understand mm-hmm. is difficult. But what I, what I think what I really took away from the book is, is both the, the 
the clarity with which it makes sense to put a price on carbon, but the the difficult politics of it yeah. that it's just it's just incredibly challenging. And, and that takes me to um, something that transpired just earlier. I think it was earlier this week. No, last week, and that we were in a symposium together. Alas, a remote symposium via Zoom in which I think you said something like, I'm probably not getting this perfectly correct, that economists are spending too much time focusing exclusively on carbon pricing, meaning carbon taxes or cap and trade. They really need to begin to work to help the political process in terms of non-pricing policies, what economists would, alas, refer to as second best approaches. Is that a fair characterization? If not, please correct me. Well, it's it's a bit more nuanced. I mean, I, I am a firm believer that that we should do the most efficient policies possible, and I think carbon pricing is precisely the way to do that. Uh, I prefer a carbon tax to cap and trade. I think for a number of reasons, but I think politically, I can see an argument for cap and trade. But the political environment is such that that's just not going to happen. And meanwhile, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere continues to rise. So given that, I think we are obligated, mm-hmm. those of us who care about the climate, to uh, promote policies that will reduce emissions now, even if they're not necessarily our most desirable policies. And what would be an example of those sorts of policies? Well, unfortunately, given the, the political uh, environment we, we're in at the moment, it, it will be unilateral policies by the administration. Uh, because Congress is simply not going to act. That's one level. So that means doing as much through regulatory policy as possible, even though that's quite challenging given uh, the, the, uh, uh, some recent uh, decisions by the Supreme Court and, in fact, their willingness to, to potentially uh, take on the Chevron decision. But it also means working at the state level and, uh, and pushing policies there. I think actually what's going to be most promising uh, and where we're going to end up doing the most is, is, is in spending money. And it's going to be yeah. spending money through, through uh, R&D. And let me come back to that in a minute because I have some thoughts on that. But also through tax subsidies, mm-hmm. through production and investment tax credits. And I think we should, we should use those as much as we can. I mean, there is uh, tremendous congressional resistance in this area. But one thing that's true about both Democrats and even today's breed of Republicans is that they vastly prefer giving out benefits to costs and so subsidies are popular and in fact the infrastructure bill does contain some climate friendly elements and the reconciliation bill has this 555 billion dollars of climate what are essentially uh, subsidies which normally economists are quite critical of compared to a policy that would not necessarily be affecting government expenditures, uh, but is a carbon tax or, as you said, a cap-and-trade system. Well, that's right. Um, and, and in thinking about, say, production tax credits, which have been enormously influential for, uh, uh, for wind yes. uh, investment, one recommendation I would make, which is I don't believe has made it into these bills, I wrote a policy brief on this uh, this past summer, is that if you look at the the production tax credit gives a, a roughly two and a half cent per kilowatt hour tax credit uh, for for wind generated for the first ten years of a project, and 
my uh, uh, recommendation is is that we ought to tie that tax credit to the social cost of carbon. Uh, today, if I, I, I did a rough calculation in that policy brief, and and that would that would essentially, given given the official social cost of carbon numbers that the Biden administration is using, that would be about a two and a half cent per kilowatt hour production tax credit. So it doesn't change the credit now, but uh, as the social cost of carbon rises over time, then the production tax credit should rise over time. You know, and it appears that this interagency task force that Biden set up to review the interim estimate of the social cost of carbon um, by, I think, the end of January 2022, they're going to probably come up with a number, partly as a result of lowering the discount rate, which is approximately double or even more what the interim measure is of the social cost of carbon. That's right. And I think that means we should be doubling the uh, production tax credit. Now, you mentioned that because of the challenges in the Congress, this administration, as the Obama administration did, is likely to have to resort to actions that they can do unilaterally, which would be regulations and also executive orders of other kinds. But um, as I think you alluded to, um, in terms of the courts, regulations or rulemakings during the Biden years are likely to be subject to successful legal challenge more likely than they were during the Obama administration because Mr. Trump appointed 225 federal judges. That's more than 25% of the federal judiciary. And perhaps more importantly, and what I think you were keying in on, uh, three conservative justices for a 6-3 conservative majority, and one which seems to favor a literal reading of statutes, giving less flexibility for the interpretation of a statute in, quote-unquote, innovative ways uh, to the Congress. And so so I, I see the regulatory approach, certainly through the Clean Air Act, uh, is going to be fraught and will be mm-hmm. subject to great legal challenge. I see less of a problem, uh, you may know more about this than I do, Rob, but I see less of a problem with fuel economy standards, mm-hmm. ratcheting those up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can do something in transportation. Um, we we'll, we're going to have to use. I think we'll use tax credits in the electricity sector uh, instead of regulation, mm-hmm. and and perhaps we'll do the same in buildings. But that gets to the third leg of what I would call a, a policy tripod mm-hmm. in a third best world, which is R and D spending. Mm-hmm. And here I think the R and D spending really needs to be focused on 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 the technologies that have the greatest potential to lower the cost of clean energy. Uh, There's a really interesting paper that Jim Stock and Ken Gillingham wrote a few years ago where they sort of differentiated between sort of uh, static and dynamic uh, policy efficiency. The static being, you know, what's your what's your cost effectiveness of a policy, Mm -hmm. you know, your emission reductions uh, per dollar uh, for a particular policy. And the dynamic one sort of focuses on which policy is going to give us the greatest likelihood of reducing the cost of, of, of clean energy in the future. And I think that's really where we need to focus. And with climate change, which is a long-term problem, th- that approach of thinking about the effect of a policy on bringing down the c- costs of carbon reductions over time is extremely important. It's critical. Yeah. Absolutely critical. Now, some people, just to finish up on the courts, uh, some legal scholars and commentators have suggested that 
the Chevron Doctrine, which has been around for, I think, about 30 years, if not more, in which the courts and the Supreme Court gives deference to agencies' interpretations, could actually be overturned. Is that an excessively pessimistic thought? Well, it's a pessimistic thought, but I think it's a realistic thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do see that as as a risk. But on, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what that will mean at the end of the day. Um, but I think our experience so far has been that the regulatory approach is a slow one that is subject to a lot of, of um, uh, sand in the gears through through legal uh, legal challenges. Well, one of the things that could quite possibly mean would be that uh, the conclusion by the current and the Obama administration that the article of the Clean Air Act focusing on localized air pollution could apply to carbon dioxide and climate change, that that might be in trouble, that interpretation. That's the entire basis for action under the Clean Air Act on climate. But it is striking that even if that doesn't get overturned, uh, the Obama initiative uh, uh, with with the Clean Power Plan went nowhere. Yes, yeah, and that was before the demise of Justice Scalia that the Supreme Court intervened and placed a stay on the Clean Power Plan. So that was without these three justices that are on the Supreme Court now. So that is a difficult route. I agree with you completely. Can, can I finish up, because we're running close to the end of our time together, um, something that's been striking in with regards to climate change and climate change policy broadly conceived have been the youth movements of climate activism in Europe and in the United States, particularly in 2019, and then we saw a bit of a hiatus in 2020 because of the pandemic, but then it came back again in force, certainly at Glasgow uh, this year at COP. 26. I'm interested in, you know, as a former youth activist yourself, as you described (laughs) back in the bicycle repair days, um, what's your reaction to these youth movements on climate change? You know, it's interesting. My views have really changed. Um, uh, Ten years ago, I think I looked at groups like 351.org that were focused on the pipeline and uh, some of the other movements and thought they were kind of a sideshow mm-hmm. uh, and that the climate talks in the negotiations were really the important things happening at these uh, COP meetings. I've actually changed my mind entirely. And to me, in a, I, I'm more pessimistic about where the negotiations will get us given the urgency uh, of action, but that the, that the youth movements, Greta Thunberg and others, are really, to me, incredibly important in that they are driving public opinion and bringing media attention to, to to the problem in a way that I think is extremely extremely valuable. So, so I see them as inc- as just absolutely essential. I mean, I think an interesting question there is, and I agree with you. My my views and my reactions to it have also evolved in the same direction um, over that same period of time. But I think an interesting question is whether or not we're seeing an age effect or a cohort effect. So 10 years from now, if it's purely an age effect, then these people are going to be somewhat more conservative as they age and maybe thinking about other issues. If it's a cohort effect, they're going to retain their strong views, their commitments, 
and rather than being demonstrating on the across the street from the negotiations at the annual conference of the parties they'll be the delegations inside the conference of the parties so the one thing that makes me uh, encourages me that this is a cohort effect rather than simply an age effect is the self-interest mm -hmm. if you go back to the you know to the anti-vietnam protesters john Kerry and and others back in the 60s and 70s they had a real uh stake in the game because they could go off to vietnam and i think the current young uh, uh youth movements see a very clear stake for themselves in terms of the damages that we're seeing in the world today because of climate change so i think that gives them a more enduring stake that may outlast uh, their youth. Well, that's a very encouraging and hopeful point and wish on which to end. And I hope you're right. Uh, so we're, we're going to bring this to a close with that. Thank you very much, Gib, for taking time to join us today. Well, it's been a pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Our guest today has been Gib Metcalf, professor of economics at Tufts University. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.